Welcome to Reckoning. My name is Ingrid, and I'm starting this podcast to share open and honest discussions about our experiences with death. I'm hoping that as a culture, we can grow to talk about it without it being feared as a heavy, scary, and overwhelming topic. Let's talk about it more, get a little more comfortable with it, wrestle and wonder and ask questions. Let's reckon with it. We all have to deal with this aspect of life. We will lose everyone we know, and we ourselves will die. So how can we face this reality with eyes more open, with some grace, humility, understanding, and even appreciation? How can we embrace this aspect of being a human and use it as a way to grow, learn, and expand? The goal of this podcast is to turn toward these shared experiences, using our stories and collective wisdom to gain some courage and strength and skill to face it. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to and have these conversations with me. Thanks for being willing to reckon with the topic of death and dying. This interview is part of a series of seven interviews I did with classmates for a project in my end-of-life class. I'm so grateful to them for sharing so vulnerably and taking the risk to tell their story to me when some of us have only met on Zoom or only met in this one class. If you haven't checked it out yet, I created an episode where I combined all seven interviews into one, and I highly recommend listening. I'm currently in Selwood, which is in Portland, Oregon, um, and I'm here to talk today because your project sounds really cool, and I love having these conversations with people, and it just seemed like a great opportunity. Awesome. Well, um, thanks for taking advantage of the opportunity. It's a, a pleasure to have someone that I've seen their face in classes and now I get to like get to know you a little bit more in a, in a very personal way. So yeah, I appreciate, appreciate that. Um, so Peggy, uh, will you tell me about, yeah, who you lost and what they meant to you and yeah, maybe just a little bit about that story. Yeah. So, um, in March, 2018, my dad died. Mm-hmm. Um, he and I were really close um, I was his only child. I have mm. two older sisters, but they're technically my half sisters because we have different dads. Um, so my dad and I had a pretty special relationship <clears throat> um, my entire life. He was older for my age. He was 45 when I was born. Um, so part of me always knew I was going to lose him a little earlier mm. than most. And he also just did not take very good care of himself. He loved French cooking and butter and hollandaise on everything and um, started drinking a lot of wine when I was in my 20s which was strange because he had been sober from that for like 30 years Um, so that was a strange shift Um, and he also was a heavy cigarette smoker as well Mm. 
so he was a bit of a ticking time bomb um mm. just having that sort of feeling that i i'm losing sort of early i i really prioritize spending time with him also because i just love spending time with him i, I just love being in his company as a little girl i'd just hang out with him in our barn when he was tinkering on things and just keep him company while he was um cooking dinner and um would use all my later in life would use all my work vacation time to go on sailing trips with him and mm. um, just really tried to get the most out of him as I could. He and my mom ended up divorcing when I was 18 and then he married uh, my stepmom Lynn um, but that marriage didn't last very long probably about five years so he divorced again and I, I was about 26 around that time and um shortly after the divorce he had a massive stroke so he had no one caring for him he was living in his house in connecticut and i had just moved to vermont he had just helped me move to vermont like a week and a half before um i drove up a big u-haul full of furniture um and then you know shortly after was in the icu after having a big stroke hmm. um so I went down there and he was completely out in the ICU for, let's see, a solid week. And then he woke up a little bit and spent another week in the um, step-down unit in the hospital, then spent a month in a um, really intensive rehab facility, and then another month in a less intense one, and then finally made it back home to his house in Connecticut. Um, and I was kind of coordinating all of this from afar. And that was really awful. Um, I just remember every morning going into the ICU and um, so badly wanting him to just wake up and, and have his normal voice and have his normal look. And, and he just didn't. Um, but we got him home and um, he had financial resources, which was helpful. Um, so we were able to hire private caregivers and they did a great job. They did the best job they could, most of them. Um, there was a lot of drama involved in that process, um, which we could save for another interview. But um, <laughs> those were really hard years. He was in a wheelchair. He couldn't walk. Um, he probably could have made more progress if he had wanted to, but he had been depressed his whole life and was never really like a motivated health person and um, just didn't bring that drive to this big insurmountable task he had. Um, so he was just pretty pissed off at life for being in this wheelchair and his cognitive abilities were affected. He had speech, but just said some kind of inappropriate things and a lot of his friends he had a handful of good friends that would just visit him religiously. Um, but it was interesting. A few others just kind of backed away. Um, I think mm. seeing sort of their own mortality was hard for a lot of people. And mm -hmm. um, he just made them uncomfortable for several reasons. Mm -hmm. um, he had been a big sailor, as I mentioned, and also a car collector. And um, he was just so upset that he couldn't do either of those things. But it was interesting, he would tell me he had gotten in the car and driven to the grocery store or he would still make all these sailing plans. It, just like his will to believe that he could still do these things totally 
overrode any sort of sense of reality he had. And that was really heartbreaking too. Eventually I learned just to sort of go along with things and not talk them out of them, but um, it's pretty hard. And he had a couple of falls. He had a lot of trouble swallowing. Um, so he would constantly get pneumonia and he went into the hospital for one of the trips. This was probably three years after the stroke. And I called the, the care team at the hospital and I said, look, he can't really go back to his house. His caregivers can't manage him anymore. This has been a you know, conversation I've been having with the caregivers leading up to this event. Um, he really needs to be in a facility and I need help facilitating that conversation. And the staff in the hospital agreed and they discharged him to a nursing home still in Connecticut. Um, and he was absolutely miserable there and actually called me one day and gave me like a suicidal monologue over mm. the phone that if I didn't get him out of there, he would just kill himself. So I asked if he would be willing to come up to Vermont because I did know of um, some assisted living places that were a lot nicer looking and not as institutional. And he agreed to that. So I moved him up to Vermont and set him up in an apartment, which he liked at first. He had like a honeymoon at this place. And I then had to sell his house without telling him, um, you know, I sort of had to pose this as a temporary stay for him because he was so set on just things going back to normal, which I knew they couldn't health-wise. And I also knew we couldn't financially mm. pay for a house and assisted living and um, a sailboat and maintaining a sailboat. And um, so that was a really hard part of the process too, just um, having to lie to him about a lot of things, even though they were for his best interest. Mm. So anyway, he was re residing in Vermont and shortly got pretty mad that he was in an assisted living facility and I felt like I was the mother of like the problem kid at a boarding school I was just getting phone calls every day from the nursing manager mm -hmm. saying that he was saying inappropriate things to the staff and um banging his silverware on the table at, at meals which was just hard to hear because he had impeccable manners before. I mean, his, um, he spent the first five years of his life living in the Plaza Hotel in New York because his father managed that. So he just had this sort of like old world, worldly gentleman mm. quality about him. And it was really hard just hearing about all these behavioral things. Mm. Um, and it's just immensely stressful because it wasn't registering to him what the consequences could be. He could get kicked out of the assisted living facility if he didn't start to treat people a little bit better. So we were constantly working on that. And then he got a bout of pneumonia and went into the hospital and had a pleural effusion. He had really bad back pain and it turned out to be a pleural effusion, which is like a sack of fluid in the lung that often gets left behind from the pneumonia. And this was all about a year and a half after he moved to Vermont. Um, so they drained the effusion and then did a post-procedure CAT scan to make sure they got it all. And when they did that, they found that he had stage four cancer all through his spine and hips. Mm. And um, it was really advanced and um, oncologists, it, it was hard. They were, they were asking us what we would like to do 
And my dad at first was like, well, I guess I want to get a biopsy of it. So he wanted to know what kind of cancer it was. And they said, okay. So they got, they sent him down for the biopsy, which had to be done under um, CAT scan. And my dad refused when he got there. So they sent him back up and the care teams sort of began to realize like, okay, maybe your dad doesn't quite know how to make decisions for himself at this point because he's saying one thing, but then like refusing the actual test. And, but it, it was really hard because then the next day he would say to me, like, I want to fight this thing. Um, so I had these conflicting messages of he didn't really want to know. He didn't, he wanted to just let nature take its course, but then he would get these spurts of, I, I want to do everything I can to live. Not yet. And at, at one point, um, the oncologist connected me with palliative care and they were really helpful. And I, it was just me to make the decision. So I said, I was just so, in such shock too, because um, up until this, it had just been caring for his, I had just been caring for this massive stroke. And I, before that had actually had fears that he was going to live for so long that we would run out of money and I wouldn't know what to do for him. Um, so this is just a total turn of events. Um, and the palliative team said, you know, we, if it were our dad, we would probably suggest hospice care at this point. And we can have, the oncologist will have more of a conversation with your dad about this too. Um, so they did. And they said, you know, um, you've, you've had a really rough few years medically, and we don't feel like we could, we would be responsible in agreeing to treat you. And um, if you're, if you would really like to know what kind of cancer it is, I can tell you it's behaving a lot like lung cancer, um, the way that it metastasized. And I mean, then that makes total sense. I mean, he had been smoking his whole life. Um, so my dad just sort of like surrendered after that. And we decided that he would go to a uh, hospice facility. I really didn't want him dying in the hospital. Um, I had worked at that hospital myself. I worked as an orderly actually for a year when I was like in my early twenties and he was on the, um, like general medicine unit. And I just hated going to that unit when I was working there. It just had the smell and I, I really didn't want him being there. Um, so he went to this really nice hospice facility, uh, run by the VNA visiting nurses association there. And before we were going, that's when we had some really emotional conversations that will be hard for me to describe. He said he knew there was something all along and mm. that he'd never forget everything I did for him. Mm. And I had a chance to say too, um, I would never forget everything he did for me. <laughs> and then we went to a hospice and um, we were told he probably had a few months. So I was able to kind of write him like a, a journal entry, kind of listing all those things I would never forget about him uh, and, and was able to read it to him, um, mm. which I'm so glad he did because he ended up dying um, a week after getting to hospice. Mm. So that's the story. <laughs> wow. Yeah.
Thank you for sharing that. So what was the whole timeline like? When did like the timeline between him having this stroke and him like passing away in hospice? Yeah, so um, it was five years after the stroke. Oh wow, mm -hmm. that that is a long time. That is a significant portion of your life. It really was, and I was yeah. when the stroke happened. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it was just. It felt like the majority of my real adulthood. <laughs> mm, 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 mm. Yeah. Um, this is kind of a loaded question and feel free to not answer it if you don't want to, but do you have resentment about that? Does that, does that um, feel? I, during it, I would feel resentful and um, especially when he was like acting up at the facility I got really angry with him a few times and said, you know, you're not the only one whose life changed when you had this stroke and um, I'm doing the best I can and I, I mm -hmm. need you to carry some of this too. And he would have moments of clarity and he'd agree and he was really appreciative the whole time. Um, and he hated feeling like a burden so mm -hmm. I worked really hard to, to make him not feel like a burden. Um, mm -hmm. I resented during this time, like a lot of my friends were getting married and mm -hmm. I was single and like I'm still single. And I felt like all my energy was just devoted to him and I wasn't progressing in life in ways that I should have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I had just completed another master's program before his stroke. So I am glad I had had that under my belt and I had a, a pretty good job at, at the hospital. Um, and I managed to buy a house in the time that I was caring for him with the stroke. So some things were in motion, but um, I definitely felt like my heart was consumed by caring for him. And I did have moments of resentment about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I just can imagine that it to, to a large degree, it sounds like your life is put on pause <laughs> to take care of him. And, you know, a theme that has come up in a lot of my conversations with people specifically about losing parents um, is this, this like, feeling of being forced into an adult role or a parenting role for our parents, um, which like, yeah, you had even said specifically, like, I felt like the mother with the bad kid at school, you know, like, and that, um, you know, I think that's a natural order of things, you know, as, as like parents age, we become their caregivers. Um, but 
I think that there's a lot of room for, yeah, resentment in that. Like, hey, wait a minute, this is your job is to take care of me, not the other way around. And um, yeah, and especially to have that be for such a long time to be the caregiver. Yeah, and I I had a little resentment too because um, a lot of the position he was in was due to the decisions he had made. Um, mm-hmm. He just would never consider quitting smoking. Um, mm-hmm. And I and I get that there was a lot of pain. He was just really depressed his whole life. He had lost his parents pretty early and had lost um, three really close friends um, in pretty horrific ways. And um, he just never dealt with his depression. And um, I was also resentful that he didn't take better care of his marriages because I would have been able to Mm -hmm. share this with somebody. And Mm Um, yeah, so I, and at the same time though, I've just like adored him so much that like for much of my life, he could never do any wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. When he had the stroke, I was kind of more forced to take off the rose colored glasses with him and and see him more as a human. Um, Mm -hmm. And in some ways that experience gave us a chance to have a more human to human connection. Mm. Just in reflecting even after he died, I realized, you know, I wasn't, he was a really good provider for me, but I, he had also like parentified me for much of my life too. He always treated me like an adult. Um, Mm. That was just his style. Like he wasn't really, he didn't know how to talk to kids. And I'm very grateful for that in a lot of ways because it's, um, I think I have sort of an old soul quality that I get, which is very much a result of just my relationship with him. But I feel back to the question of resentment, a little resentful that I just didn't have a full chance to be a a kid, a character Mm -hmm. with him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I relate to that in the sense that, um, yeah, my, my dad also died, like he died of alcoholism. Uh, and yeah, I remember, I, I mean, I still feel this way, like, you know, come on, what the heck? Like I lose out on all these things because like, you know, you couldn't take care of yourself in that way. And my mom is a lifelong smoker and I'm like, come on. Like I've had so many conversations with her. I'm like, and that's really rough. Um, and I, Oh my gosh, there's like so much that I want to talk about, like so many different directions this conversation can go. Um, I think, um, I think one thing I, I I would love to know is um, like kind of switching emotional gears a little bit is I uh, just want to hear like what you adored about him or like some, some like really happy memories or things that make you laugh or even like it, you know, like the morbid humor can come up in, in these like, you know, situations. So just curious if you want to share any of that stuff um yeah he I mean he always just had a really dry sense of humor with really good timing on things and um that's one thing he maintained through the his whole life even after having a stroke and if anything he got like a little funnier because the stroke just gave him this very flat monotone 
mm. voice. Um, I mean, we had several experiences just sitting in the ER for like eight hours and he would just crack me up. And any, I mean, close, this, mm-hmm. this was during that conversation in the, um, in the hospital room when we found out that he had this really advanced terminal cancer. Um, we started talking a little bit about um, what some of his wishes were and, um, I said, you know, I, I know you want to be cremated and buried up with your parents in the cemetery where they're buried. And um, when my dad was healthy, he and I would go to his parents' grave every Christmas and hang a wreath together. Um, and um, so when we we're talking about these plans, I said, you know, and, and I will go every Christmas and hang, and hang the wreath. And he said, oh, good. And I'll look down at you or up at you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Gosh, all the, yeah, he just, he had a really good, good humor and um, we we would just make each other laugh a lot. Mm. Um, I'll I'll keep trying to think of some pre-stroke Hank yeah um i was gonna ask that hank (laughs) short um Mm. just some good humor to share on that um yeah that's great i can it's i mean it's amazing like i can i can tell just like as you're recounting even just thinking about like you're just i just feel the mirth like bubbling up in you you know and it's i mean i feel like one of the downsides of podcast is it's just audio. So no one can see that. Um, but it's, it's a treat, you know, to see like, yeah, just even the thought, like obviously is so warm for you and um, you know, what, what a gift, what a gift to have a relationship with a parent that, um, that, that feels so joyful. And um, obviously there's a lot of mixed feelings within that relationship and how things went, but yeah, just how lovely. Yeah, I feel very lucky. He was a, a really good dad. Mm. Mm. Um, one of the things that you came up for me when you were telling your story was um, your use of the word surrender. Um, at one point, you know, I think you said he just surrendered to hospice. Um, and And I feel like that feels like such a poignant word for you know, I guess what sounds to me like something he was struggling with is like that surrendering piece of not not wanting to give up sailing and, you know, all these things that are a part of his identity and, um, and to, you know, for you to watch him like being forced to surrender them. (laughs) Yeah, I don't, it's just not a word that gets used very often. Um, And there's such a, such a vulnerability in it you know it's um anyway I think it's just a poignant word and yeah I'm just I'm just curious if that brings up anything for you like what it what it felt like to like you you are in your own process of surrendering your relationship with him or like you know I don't know if you had conversations with him about some of that like his loss of independence and things like that or 
I try really hard to keep up normalcy as much as I could. Like I would, even though he wasn't as good of a conversationalist, like he, he would just have trouble finding words sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd still try to have conversations with him where I knew he could give me some advice. Um, I just, like I mentioned, I bought a house during the time um, that I was caring for him. And he had owned a real estate company. That's what he did for work. So I just brought whatever questions I could to him to try to keep up some feeling of independence for him. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I remember there was a moment where I did surrender to the notion that, all right, I'm in charge now because mm -hmm. for probably the first six months, I tried to let him still be calling the shots, but some really bad decisions were being made. And I feel like I surrendered in that way to things can't go on as status quo anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When it came time for, when it came to the time of his death, I mean, my head was just spinning at that point and I hadn't even really had a chance to come to the point of surrender on anything mm. yet. Um, I mean, he, he seemed to surrender in the hospital and just sort of like gave up. And then he arrived in hospice and they were really, you know, pushing his morphine so he would be out of it, but he would come to sometimes and be really mad and would be like, I want to get out of here. I want to go back to Quarry Hill. That hospice doctor is condescending. I don't want to be here. Um, so that was a point where I did not feel peaceful mm. surrender. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's when I learned no matter how expected something can be, most people don't have that scene of everyone gathered around their bedside and having mm -hmm. these final tidy conversations. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the first time I learned that. Mm. And it, it was hard for me to except that my dad died angry and not wanting to die. Yeah. I mean, and we've talked about that in our class a little bit and it comes up in the book being mortal that we're all reading. And um, I think, I mean, part of why I'm interested in having these conversations with people is that I think we've all been done sort of this injustice in, in not, not being like, we're kind of fed this idea from wherever I don't know I almost don't even know where it comes from but we're fed this idea that like death looks like yeah you're in a bed you're surrounded by people that love you you say goodbye your last words are like super powerful <laughs> like, but yeah I mean I think so few of us will ever die that way um and and then it adds another layer of grief like oh we must be doing something wrong or like why why not us or you know yeah, it's just, un it's like an unfair expectation that was placed on us. Um, yeah. <laughs> the creator has romantic comedies. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. but, um, there was a saving grace in it. Um, so I told people who were close to him, who lived in, mostly lived in Connecticut, um, you know, that my dad just, is on hospice now to get everyone by surprise. Um, so this woman, Sean, who lived next door to my dad in Connecticut, um, her parents are my dad's age and they were, they're really, they were really close with my dad. And then Sean and I were really good friends, are really good friends. Even though there's a 20 year age difference between us, um, she became like a sister. Hmm. So she came up 
to see us in Vermont and my dad's main caregiver, Mary, who was like just a godsend during this whole thing. She was with him for the whole time that he was in Connecticut. Um, she drove up separately as well. And she went to my dad's hospice facility. I had worked a half day. The plan was Sean was going to meet me for lunch. We went to a yoga class. Um, we were going to go have lunch later and then go meet up at the hospice facility and hopefully see Mary there too. Um, so Sean and I are in this yoga class and that alone was special because um, one of my favorite teachers, Sophie, was teaching and she knows Sean from 30 years ago. Um, they were both, Sophie was married to a member of the band Fish and Sean's mm -hmm. friend is in Fish. So they knew each other from like another lifetime. Of mm -hmm. before. So it was just special for the three of us to be in the same room. And um, I don't know if you practice yoga, but at the end of it, you go into Shavasana, which mm. is basically like a, a death um, mm. and a state of surrender, back to our, mm -hmm. our word. And mm -hmm. I had this realization during it, like, oh, I can be so happy that I'm sharing this special class with Sophie and Sean and still be really sad that my dad is dying mm -hmm. in a facility 10 minutes down the road and it it was just a helpful realization for me about all the different feelings you can have um mm. at any point in life and so we finished the class and we go to sit down at um this restaurant for lunch and I have a few missed calls and I a couple are from Mary and I call Mary and I just have this awful feeling and I'm like oh my God, did he die? And she said, yes. And I just couldn't believe that that's mm. what happened. And um, she said, he's, she's like, Peggy, it was the most peaceful thing I've ever seen. And mm. Sean will drive you here. He's still very much in this room. Mm. Take a deep breath and I will see you soon. So mm. it was like the longest, <laughs> most surreal drive over to go mm. see him. And Mary was right. You could still feel him. Um, Sean and Mary gave me some time and I just hugged him and had a few moments with him. And afterward, Sean and Mary came back in and, and Mary told me what happened. She, um, oh, and as a side note, for the entire year and a half or two years that my dad had been living in Vermont, he probably asked me, every other time that I saw him, where's Mary? I'd like to see Mary. Like he was just asking her for her regularly. So when Mary told us what happened, she said um, she walked into his hospice room and he looked over and said, oh my God, you're here. And mm. she said, of course I'm here. And they sat together and she put on some classical music and they chatted a little bit and, um, he just looked over at her and closed his eyes and died. So wow, that was so helpful to me. Um, I mean, mm. at first I was really upset that I wasn't there with him, but mm. I, also, I also realized that, that um, sometimes people just need their best friend, not their child, to mm. help them leave. Mm. 
so I'm, I'm just glad that he was with her mm. and in her comfort. Mm. That's a, um, it's a beautiful death story. It really is. Yeah. yeah. And I, I really love that, um, that, yeah, you were in this, yeah, Shavasana pose. <laughs> um, yeah, that's such a beautiful example of like, yeah, maybe this like parallel with his experience and um, yeah. Yeah, I looked at the timing and he died while we were in that Shavasana. So it, it's like- That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and in a way, I think I was able to be closer to him in that way than I would mm-hmm. had I been sitting next to him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. That gives me chills. That's, that's amazing. Um, Yeah. And I, I really love, um, it sounds like it was Mary that said like, he's still in the room. Like, I think that that is also a a really um, insightful observation for someone to, to make and to explain to you. And then for you to also feel that and observe it. That's, um, yeah, that's, that's a gift, you know, like, that's a powerful way of, like, um, you know, we don't, like, we almost don't have words for these experiences, and, uh, and, like, how to describe that to somebody, but just to know it, and, like, to feel it in your body is, um, I don't know, I guess it just feels like a really intimate connection with life and death on this, like, much mysterious grander scale than we can imagine you know so this sounds so glib but what an what a powerful experience you know like and obviously you know we'd rather have our dads (laughs) but I guess the way I articulate it to people is like because I was there I was in the room when my dad died and that those like moments afterwards like feeling him still in the room like exactly what you're talking about is like I'm so grateful that I had that experience. Like, I'm so grateful for that. Like, it's like the closest thing to God that I've touched to the great mystery or whatever it is. It's just like, this is completely inexplicable and it's hard. But exactly what you were saying in that yoga class is like, how can it be all of these feelings at once? Like, how can it kind of wild? Yeah. Mm. was it just you with your dad or your mom um no my so my parents also got divorced um when I was pretty little um and anyway but so it's kind of a long story um but it was my sister and I were both um in the room with him and one of the things that I I was just talking about this with someone the other day um you know like I think as you and I had both mentioned like before starting the recording, um, you know, we got into this work because of these experiences. They're profound and life-changing. And, um, and so like, I'm really grateful to be learning all these things about hospice and death and dying and like, um, social work. But I feel some of my resentment is that my dad didn't go on hospice, um, because someone at the hospital, kind of similar to what you're saying, like people had said like, oh, it might be like a month or two months. And then he died. Yeah. I think he died like a week or 10 days later at home. 
And somebody had said, oh, well, you should put him on palliative care because it's his insurance will cover more time. Um, and now that I'm on this side of things, like in the medical system, I'm like, who, who suggested that? Like, that is, that was so misguided, like, for us to make a decision based on, like, insurance rather than the reality of, anyway. So I have some resentments about that. Um, because what it meant is that in the moment of my dad's passing, like, I had no idea he was dying. Like, I just thought, oh, he can't breathe right now. <laughs> and so I like called the nurse and they were like, okay, you, like give him some morphine, you know? And yeah, so I just, I think I got um, shorted an opportunity to like have more of a peaceful goodbye with him um, rather than this, like what's happening? Like, um, did, like, dad, are you okay? Like we're here, you know? And so um Anyway, these things that we learn, I guess, and then hopefully we carry into our practice. Um, yeah. You did get through that experience, and it's largely due to, or solely due to the way our healthcare system works. Mm-hmm. 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 And similarly, I kind of feel, I mean, my dad had been getting lung scans and lung chest x-rays before, and he had like some other stuff that they had been keeping an eye on, and I I don't know how they missed this cancer. And mm. I also don't know why he wasn't put on palliative care sooner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I think a lot of his discomfort was being framed as, oh, Hank, you're not getting up. You're not moving enough. You're not doing enough to make yourself feel better. Mm. Which in part was true. I mean, he wasn't engaging in anything and he was just sitting in a chair. Mm-hmm. all day and then we go to bed um but he was also in a lot of pain because he had advanced cancer that they didn't mm-hmm. figure out mm-hmm. it was last year he been more comfortable too yeah these these like broken medical systems and it's like hard enough to deal with the grief of you know loss and and then added it is like this extra salt in the wound of like, yeah, making it harder for us to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Mm. Even though his death is deeply sad. I experienced more grief during those five years of caring for him after the stroke and more yes. stress and just more. Yes. Spare. Yeah. And which I'm sure you've heard maybe from others too. And maybe about yourself it's just because we've already lost a lot of this person when they have an event like that Um, yep so you're grieving that part but then working so hard to figure out all the logistical stuff Mm -hmm. navigating all the many curveballs that come with having in-home help and Mm -hmm. um, yeah but his death was a lot easier in many respects Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i'm glad you mentioned that i was um that was sort of one of the paths that I definitely was, um, you know, wanted to bring up and was curious about, um, like it struck me. I think, I think you used the word grief like early on, like when you talked about a stroke, maybe, you know, like that is the grief began there. I feel like, you know, um, yeah. And that, yeah, the morning of like losing who he was. And I mean, again, like as we're talking and learning about, it's not just the death process, it's the dying process and the, 
the years of caregiving and navigating these like complicated systems and insurances and facilities. And, you know, like we learn all these things that we never wanted to learn, you know, like all these acronyms and diagnoses and tools and like ADLs and, you know, like just, uh, yeah. Yeah. But I, um, I do think it's beautiful that you had mentioned you were able to, both of you were able to tell each other, like, I acknowledge and I appreciate and thank you. And, you know, you like carried each other, you know, at different times. And um, yeah, I think that's really important. So I'm glad you got that. Yeah, me too. Mm -hmm. I don't have a religion or like, I don't know, I have some thoughts about what happens after death. Um, mm -hmm. but I will say one thing that happened after my dad died, I mean, granted it was, it was late March in New England, but, um, after he died, I'd be going on walks a lot and I'd just see all these robins. And it was like always when I, um, was thinking about him or just saying to myself, like, please dad, like, please give me some sign that you're here. And a robin would show up and, mm -hmm. um, it just happened enough times that I was like, all right, this clearly is my dad <laughs> like mm -hmm. coming to me in some way. And I shared that with a friend and she was like, oh, Google Robins and see what comes up. And it turns out um, Robins are known to be, there's like a little song. Um, when you see a Robin is near, that means a departed loved one is mm. holding you dear or something like that. Um, mm. So apparently Robins have this like full significance of being a representative of somebody you've lost. And I, mm. up until then, I never quite believed in anything like that. So that's mm. been sort of a nice thing. And then when I moved here to Portland a year and a half ago, I remember I just arrived and was going on a walk and I was like, I don't even know if they have Robins here in the like, Northwest. And <laughs> I turned the block and there were like a tree full of Robins. So it's mm. Sounds a little hokey, but that's been hmm. something that's helped me feel like he's still with me in some way. Hmm. I love that. I mean, I um, I think this is part of what what pulls me and, and interests me in these conversations and this work is um, that there are still some things that we just can't explain. And I don't know. I uh, a friend of mine, we were talking about it being like the intersection between woo-woo and science yeah. <laughs> is like, yes, medicine. And we can understand more and like, you know, we can, we can learn all these things and that's great and important and wonderful and exciting. And like, there's still, yeah, mystery and magic. And yeah, I, I love that. Yeah. I love that. I hadn't heard that about Robbins, but, um, but I like that idea of it, you know, being this thing that like, you know, shows up when you need it or, mm -hmm crops up that's great yeah <laughs> I'd love to hear more about your story and your experience but I also want to just be mindful of our time but. yeah yeah I know I feel like we could chat for like another hour and a half and it does um Peggy I just want to say it does feel really special to talk with someone I feel like we just have a very like a parallel story in a lot of ways you know like um to be young women, you know, to lose a dad. And um, it's such a, 
I don't know. I, I also had like a, yeah, a really special relationship with my dad and, and yeah, there's some problems with it too, but I just, yeah, I don't know. I just appreciate that kinship of, um, it's like C.S. Lewis, I think, talked about the definition of friendship is people being like, me too, you too? Like, I thought I was the only one. <laughs> I just want to say one more thing, which is that I am not an expert. I'm not here to tell people how to grieve or heal or what death is or isn't. My main goal with this project is simply to create space for us to share our stories about death and dying, and from that collective experience, enable all of us to feel less alone in facing the challenges of grief and loss. Thank you for listening, for being brave and vulnerable, and for your time. Any questions or comments, please get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you and perhaps share your story too.